Thanks, Mark and Cheryl. Good morning, everyone. It's so lovely to be with you. I miss you all so much, but it's great to be able to share with you this morning. Can't wait to see you all again. For those of you who don't know me, who haven't seen me before on here, my name's Nicola. I've been part of Faith Life since the very beginning, since we had our first public meeting back in April 2006. That's 15 years ago last month. So happy birthday, Faith Life. Uh, so it's good to be with you this morning, even if it is remotely like this. I'm delighted to be able to share with you because this message has been a very long time coming. So originally I was actually due to, to be preaching on the 22nd of March 2020, which is a significant weekend being the first weekend of full lockdown in the UK. So um, this has been a long time coming, but back when I was preparing for this message back then, I had a missing piece of the jigsaw. I couldn't quite pull it together. And it's only now with the benefit of hindsight that I realized that that was probably because God needed to take me on a little bit of a journey this year to give me that final piece of the puzzle, which I'll come on to a little bit later on. So the message for this morning, I've given a title. If you like a title, we've called it Nothing Between Us. Nothing Between Us. So this morning, I want to talk about our relationship with God and how we interact with him. Now, back in the summer of 2019, I shared a message about being rich in the relationship with God instead of rich in the things of this world. And I've been meditating on that more and more as time's gone on. What does it really mean to be rich in our relationship with God? And what, what does that really look like? And as I've been mulling this over, God really reminded me of something he spoke to me about through a bit of a visual illustration a few years ago about he gave me an illustration about how there's nothing now separating us between God. There's nothing between us, nothing separating our relationship. Now, most of you will know me as a confident, upfront person, not particularly confident doing this, but we're giving it a go anyway. I'm usually on worship team, and if I'm not on worship team, I'm perhaps giving the notices or something. You might think I'm not necessarily someone who struggles with knowing how to express themselves when it comes to their relationship with God. But I have to tell you, it hasn't always been plain sailing, and that's not always the case. But this revelation that God showed to me a couple of years ago really changed the way I interact with him and the freedom I found to express myself in worship. Now, if you can cast your minds back to BP before pandemic, I think that's going to be a thing. Um, you may or may not have noticed that I wasn't actually on worship team for the last couple of months when we were having church services. Um, there wasn't anything wrong. There wasn't, a, you know, I wasn't taking time out because I was, you know, needed to break or like that. But January is my busy time at work. And not only was I a bit worried about burnout, but I really don't like doing things if I can't put my whole heart into them. So I really felt to take January off in January 2020, just because I couldn't fully commit to it. Then I thought by the time the busy season's over, February comes around, I'm going to be raring to go. But I just had this real sense that I felt like God was saying, just take a bit more time, take a bit more time. Now, there was nothing wrong, um, but for me, I just wanted to make sure that I was doing worship team and being on team for the right reasons and not just doing it because it's Sunday, we're going through the motions, that's what we do. Um, so I, I feel like, you know, I was being obedient that, to that little call I felt inside me at the time, but perhaps if I'd have known we were going to have an entire year off, I might have been less obedient in having that little bit of a break back then. Um, but it was definitely the right thing to do back then. So one of the reasons I did that was because 
in January 2020, a whole year and a half ago now, I was looking out across church one Sunday morning and I was looking at the whole setup, all the band setup, all the chairs, the seats, all the people and looking at all the structure and everything that we have in place and this random thought just popped into my head and you know when it's a random thought because it comes from way off and you're not expecting it but the thing that dropped into my head was what would your worship and relationship with God look like if none of this was here like none of the setup none of the chairs none of the church service none of it was here I remember sharing it with a few people back at that time and I remember saying, don't panic, don't panic. I don't think it's God saying this is all about to be taken away. What did I know? <laughs> now we've had a year of not having any of that stuff in our lives. But I really couldn't get that phrase out of my head. What would your relationship and worship look like if none of this was here, none of this structure? And it really made me feel that I needed to go away and examine my heart and just check my approach to why I was doing what I was doing. I wanted to be sure that the setup and structure wasn't the thing that was driving how I was relating to God. Now, I wish I could sit here today and tell you that I worked through all of that. And this year has been amazing because, you know, I had that pre-warning, which meant I went to lockdown, completely prepared. My relationship with God's been plain sailing, you know, day and night intercession. That would be a huge lie. And I want to be really real with you because I'm fairly sure that I'm not the only person who has felt a little bit like a fish out of water this year and at times really not known what I do when I haven't got that framework in place. I'm fairly sure I'm not the only one that when that safety net and blanket that we had just got ripped out from underneath us didn't quite know what to do with ourselves. Now I'm incredibly grateful to everybody in our church who has done something like part of the worship team set things up done things recorded made it possible for us to have that structure in our lives and still have that framework in place because I know the hours that you guys have put in in creating songs recording things mixing things putting them together honestly thank you because it would have been so much harder if we hadn't had those things in place but I think it's fair to say that most of us have probably struggled at some point in the last year because it has been a really unsettling experience. So if you've been in that place where you've kind of felt stuck and you've not really known what your relationship with God looks like this year and you've struggled to recognise how you walk this out when you haven't had all that structure of what we've come to know as church going on in our lives, then, then hopefully this morning will help you. Or maybe that's just normal for you. You never really know how to interact with God and what your relationship looks like in that kind of way. Or you hear people talking about God like they just had a one to one with their mate down the pub. And yet that's not your relationship with God. You can't you've never reacted with him in that way. Then I really hope today will help to unlock some of those those keys for you in doing that. Or maybe you're completely at the other extreme. The last year has been bliss for you. You're an introvert. You like the you've liked the quiet, the contemplation, the lack of structure, the stripping back. It's played to all your strong points. Then a congratulations. I want to know how you do that. Um, but I really hope that today will still really resonate with you and um, give you some some tools to to unlock some other areas that you perhaps haven't found before. So so this invitation is for everyone, whether you are flying high and sailing clear with God in your relationship with him or if it's something that you perhaps struggle with on a day to day basis. So why have I called my talk today? Nothing between us. 
I really feel like knowing the depths of relationship that we have with God can really transform the way we interact with him. Knowing that depth of relationship really sustains us, even when our outward framework of church changes. At the end of the day, our relationship with God shouldn't be dictated by rituals and framework. It shouldn't be constrained to them or by them. We should be free to relate to God with or without them. For me, knowing the extreme lengths that God has gone to to make a way perfectly clear for me to be in a relationship with him, removing every obstacle has really, really set me free in understanding my relationship with him and knowing that there is nothing separating us, there is nothing between us. So what does that look like? Well, I'm a visual person, so I think that's probably why this illustration spoke to me. Um, so I want to walk you through that, that visual illustration that God showed me. Um, it started in one particular passage. So if we start there, um, I'll take you there um, and I'll help you understand how I how I really saw God removing a barrier for me. So the passage is in 2 Corinthians. It's chapter 3, verses 17 to 18. So it's just two lines, which I'm sure most of you are fairly familiar with. So 2 Corinthians 3, 17 to 18. Now the spirit of the Lord, <laughs> now the Lord is the spirit, I'll say it the right way around, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the spirit. Now, firstly, here's what I used to think when I heard those verses. The first part where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We've all heard those lines, even if we've not read them in the Bible before. We've probably sung them in songs loads and loads of times. They're great words. They're key verses for so many people finding freedom, knowing that where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. I often though felt a little bit beaten up by this passage, um, feeling like it should be, well, where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Well, the spirit's in me, so I should be free, but I'm not feeling very free right now. So that doesn't quite fit. And I've kind of beaten myself up with that a little bit. And then I've also heard the other extreme where you've been in services where the people at the front have perhaps said, guys, the spirit of the Lord's here. Get down the front. He wasn't here a minute ago, but now he's here. You come down here. You're going to get set completely free. And, you know, the spirit of the Lord come right now. This is your chance. But it's not a magic button. It's not a magic switch that suddenly after that moment, for some people it is. And it can be a trigger in their life of setting them free. But for many people, just having that momentary experience of getting free isn't enough to sustain them. At the end of the day, you've got to believe it, live it, walk out in it, know that that's the truth in your life. At the end of the day, it's not a standalone verse. It's in the context of a wider passage. And when we read it in that wider context, I think this verse actually has a lot more meaning. Now, the second part that caught my attention, we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into his image from glory to glory. And this bit caught my attention. Initially, I always kind of thought that this passage was all about the more I look at God, the more I'll be like him, because that's the thing I'm beholding. The more I look at him, I'm looking less at other things. And that will be the thing that sustains me and transforms me into his image. Again, that's really true. But when you read this passage in the wider context of what this verse is talking about, it actually means so much more. So there's two things that really stood out to me here. First, unveiled face. What's that talking about? 
we'll come on to that in a second. And the second one was this passage starts with the word now. Now the Lord is the spirit. This means there's a before and an after, a then and a now. So in order to understand why we're in this position now, we kind of need to look back at what the position was before. Now, both these questions, the unveiled face and the now point can be answered by looking back at the passage, just that this, this verse is set in, so the little bit before it. So if we look back at the context then, Paul has just been saying that they are ministers of a new covenant, not because of their own merit, but because of what God has done for them and not by the letter of the law, which brought death, but a, a ministry of the spirit, which brings life. He's been explaining that the ministry of condemnation, which was the law, i.e. the covenant and the, the commandments that Moses brought down, they came with such a measure of glory that when Moses came back down from the mountain from getting them, he had to cover his face with a veil because the glory of the Lord, just like the entails of the glory of the Lord shining on his face was too much for the people. His point being, if that ministry and those covenants and those commandments came with that much glory, how much more glory are the new ones going to come with? Moses had to cover his face back then to hide the people from that glory, to obscure God from their view. That was then. This is now. Now we don't need a veil because we're in Christ. That's what the passage has been saying before. And that's where this all kind of comes from. There's clearly a before and an after image going on here. Before you couldn't be in God's presence and you needed a veil to protect you if you weren't the one who could go into his presence. And now you can be in a place where you can behold him unveiled as in a mirror face to face. So let's go and see the difference between these and see what difference we have then and now. So let's go and look back at that story that Moses, um, the story about Moses in the veil in a little bit more detail. Now, this story is in Exodus. It's in Exodus 33 and 34. There's a little bit to give you a little bit of background here of what was going on. The Israelites are wandering around in the wilderness. Moses has been up the mountain. He's been gone so long that they all built a golden calf. Moses came back down. God was mad. Moses had to go and smooth it out with God. Moses then intercedes for the people. Having then found favour in his sight, God says he will go with them to the promised land. And then Moses goes back up the mountain. But something interesting happens on this second trip up the mountain because it found favor with him in getting them him to go with them in the first place. Moses takes one step further and asks to see God's glory. Now, God actually declines that request to some extent and says, I can't let you see my glory, but I'll let you see my goodness pass in front of you. So when he's up having the second encounter up on the mountain, God's goodness passes all before him and he has this amazing encounter. It's because of that amazing encounter that when he comes back down with the new Ten Commandments that he's been given, his face is shining so much with the afterglow of having been in God's presence. Now, the people really can't cope with that. And like I said before, they put this veil over his face. Now, what's interesting is he puts the veil on his face when he's with the people, but he takes it off when he goes and spends time with God. So we've got a different thing going on here. So we've got people who can't stand to be in the presence of God and need a veil just to cover the, the afterglow. I mean, crumbs, I kind of think the afterglow that was on Moses' face is a little bit like someone who's been out in the sun without the factor 50 on. But in reality, if they, if they can't stand to look at it, it's going to be more like looking at the face of the sun. 
there's so much so that they have to be shielded from that. There's a clear difference between the way Moses and the people operate with God. On the one hand, you've got Moses here, where in Exodus 30, 33, it describes Moses' relationship with God and says that whenever Moses went into the tent of meeting, the two of them used to speak face to face as a man speaks with a friend. Now, face to face here is being used as an idiom. Um, it's to suggest the honest and open relationship and the intimacy that with which they speak. Numbers 12, 8 uses a very similar expression. It says that they used to speak mouth to mouth, which again, to us sounds very strange, but it's just speaking of the, the intimacy with which they were conversing. Earlier on in chapter 24, we find that it's not just Moses that goes up the mountain to start with. Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu and 70 elders. And I just tell you, I'm really glad I didn't name them all because I'd struggle with that all got invited to the base of the mountain to worship at a distance, but they only see the feet of God standing on a pavement of sapphire. That's in, that encounters in chapter 24 of Exodus. But it's only Moses that gets to go further up the mountain and have that really close encounter with God on his own. Then back far at the other end of the extreme, you've got all the other Israelites and all the other people. It says whenever Moses used to go into the tent of meeting that they would stand at the doors of their own tent and watch him from a distance. Now, the tent of meeting where Moses used to go to speak with God was actually outside the camp. So imagine this. You've got a camping field of people and then a tent of meeting over here. And these people stood so far off from God's presence that they would stand at the tents of their own, the doors of their own tents. Now, I've been to camping festivals, I've been to David's tent and Big Church Day Out, and you've seen the likes of Glastonbury and stuff on the telly. You don't camp near the main event. The campsite where everyone lives is, is quite far away. And that's how far away those people were when they came to worship God. They stood really far off, like some kind of spectator sport. Which is really sad, because they never quite got it. They never quite got what God was trying to achieve here. They'd seen God liberate them from Egypt. They'd eaten the manna that he'd provided in the wilderness for them. They'd seen him descend as a pillar of a pillar of fire and a cloud to lead them through the wilderness. And yet they still stand far off from him. There's two opposites here. We've got Moses who will take off a veil to go in and converse with God and put it back on when he talks to people. And yet you've got people who have a barrier between themselves and God two very different places and it's really sad because ultimately God longed to have a really close and intimate relationship with every single one of those people. He created humans with the sole purpose of actually walking with them in the garden and having that intimate relationship and he did do that to some extent with Adam and Eve until sin entered the world and he had to remove them from his presence to protect them. He called the Israelites out of Egypt with the purpose of bringing them to the promised land so that he could be this, their God and they could be his people, that they would have that intimate relationship. And yet what he's ended up with is a group of people who want to stand far off and far away from him and cover the veil of the glory of God sitting on Moses' face. I can't help but think how much it must have broken God's heart. Imagine having a party and inviting all loads of people and they all stood two streets away and said, no, you go in, you go and say hi, say hi from us and then come back and tell us what it's like. It, that's not how God intended for us to relate to him. 
but their hearts were so hard that they couldn't deal with the issues in their own heart. They couldn't make their own way to be with God because it was just too dangerous for them. They had to have that barrier. And it resulted in them having to have lots of rituals put in place to provide a temporary sanctification and a, and a go-between, a mediator between them so they could create, communicate with God, who could communicate with God on their behalf. But that was then. They had that ritual separation. Which brings me on to what happened next. And that's the other place where there's a major reference to a veil in the Bible. Now, this veil is the veil in the tabernacle and the temple. When Moses goes up the mountain the first time in the previous story, God gave him very specific instructions of how to construct a tabernacle. In chapter 25, verse 8, it says, And let them construct for me a sanctuary that I may dwell amongst them. Now, tabernacle literally means dwelling place. And the tabernacle was also known as the sanctuary, which emphasises the sacredness and the holiness of the place, and also the tent of meeting, which is the place where God met with his people one to one. Now, the design brief and the instructions for the tabernacle were no small thing. They run from Exodus 25 to Exodus 31. Now, in my Bible, that covers more than 11 pages. The design was incredibly intricate and it was incredibly detailed. It included intricate designs for the Ark of the Covenant, a table of showbread, a golden lampstand, curtains of linen, curtains of goat's hair, boards, sockets, the veil, screens, a bronze altar, a court for the tabernacle, even down to the detail that should be on the, the clothing that the priests had to wear. The list was quite exhaustive and it goes on. These were not flat pack instructions by any stretch of the imagination. There were specific instructions for every detail requiring exquisite craftsmanship. And Moses was really diligent to make sure that each and every instruction was followed to the letter. Now, the building itself was an elaborate affair, not a tent like what we might go camping in. Now, I'm, I quite like camping. I've got a pretty large tent when I go camping, you know, the type you can stand up in. I've even bought a carpet for it this year. I take a kitchen, I hang bunting, my tent has solar lights. It looks amazing, but that is nothing compared to the detail that has gone into making the tabernacle. Now, Jules has very kindly said that she'll pop up some slides for you. Um, so in my very best uh, Chris Whitty impression, uh, could we have the first slide, please? So the tabernacle, uh, this is an artist's impression of what it might look like. I believe there has been a few constructed and you can even buy scale models online. Now, this is a mobile sanctuary of worship. It was built in the wilderness around 1450 BC, and it has all the grandeur of being an earthly dwelling place for Yahweh. At the end of the day, this was the place where the presence of God was going to manifestly dwell with amongst his people. It had to be quite spectacular. The whole thing is designed with separation and holiness in mind. Now, I'm not a Jewish scholar, so the, the measurements I've given you have come from the internet. If they're not completely accurate, then I apologize for that. But this is assuming that a cubit, which is the measurement in the Bible, is about 18 inches from sort of the distance from your elbow to your fingertips. Now, the outer court, which I've marked on here with a red arrow, this is the sacred courtyard where people were allowed. They were allowed to come in and present their offerings and sacrifices. It was about 150 by 75 feet, uh, which is about 46 by 20, 23 meters, surrounded by a four foot seven, uh, sorry, a seven foot five fence 
curtain of finely twisted linen. Then denoted with the green arrow, we have the tabernacle itself. So that first part was just the outer court. That was where the people could be. The tabernacle is the key place. This was about 45 foot long, 15 foot wide and 15 foot high. That's about 13 and a half meters by four and a half meters wide and high. The tabernacle itself is divided into two sections. First of all, we've got the holy place, which is where I put the purple arrow. Now this is the place where the priests could go. It was separated from the outer court by five golden pillars and a screen. It contained the altar of incense, a table of showbread and a candelabra. And then the orange arrow is the holy of holies. Now this was a cube, about 15 feet cube, four and a half meters. It's where the Ark of the Covenant was kept and where the presence of God dwelt. It was kept behind four golden pillars and the veil. And the high priest would enter it once a year to make atonement for, this, for him, the sins of himself and of all the people. Now, these two sections, the holy place and the holy of holies, were divided by something called the veil. Now, the design of the veil, we're not talking like a veil like a bride would wear on this occasion. It's not a net curtain. This is quite a substantial piece of kit. So in Exodus 26, 31 to 34, it says, and you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen. It shall be made with cherubim, the work of skillful workmen, and you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold and the hooks of gold and the four sockets and the bases of silver. You shall hang up the veil under the clasps and you shall bring in the Ark of the Testimony there within the veil and the veil shall serve as a partition between you, between the holy place and the holy of holies. I repeat that. The veil shall serve for you as a partition between the holy place and the holy of holies. Now, in the same way that Moses has had a veil over his face to keep God's shininess on his face away from the people, the veil in the tabernacle acted as a barrier, but on a much, much larger scale. The actual presence of God was resting on the Ark of the Covenant, which would have been hugely dangerous for any of them if they'd have gone in there without having a pure heart before God. For the people to come into contact with that without the sacrifices and the atonements would have had devastating consequences for them. Now, while we haven't had to do it for a while, we have quite a big setup on a Sunday. We have to set up all the worship team. We have to set up all the chairs. There's a big pack up, big setup, the whole thing. And it is quite a task, but I don't think any of us fancy picking up this and packing that tabernacle down, do you? It's, that's a huge, huge undertaking. They had to pack that down and set it up every place they, really, they went to and reset themselves whilst walking around in the wilderness. And they were in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, I don't fancy taking that with me, but that's what they had to do for their worship meetings. That was the tool that was given to them to enable them to have a relationship of worship with God. We don't have to do all of that clutter. You know, setting up on a Sunday, we have a few guitars and a couple of mic stands and some seats and that's it. They had this huge undertaking. This was the tool that they had for their relationship with God. And they had to do this to honour the presence of God. Also, they could worship at a distance. Now, 
the tabernacle itself, once they'd finished wandering around in the wilderness, was upgraded. Um, it was upgraded by Solomon. Uh, it took about seven years to build. So this is the second slide. Um, it was completed around 957 BC, and the building of it is all dealt with in 2 Chronicles 3. It was later destroyed by the Babylonians and then rebuilt when the Jews returned, returned from exile. Now, the design of it was built on the blueprint that they had for the tabernacle. It had so many similar features. They used the same design brief when they were doing it. It had the outer core, it had the temple building and the temple building itself contained the two parts, the holy place and the holy of holies. And again, the common theme here, the two sections were divided by a veil to keep the presence of God in and to keep the people out. Again, this temple was upgraded. This was upgraded then by Herod. Uh, this was enlarged significantly, as you can see from the side by side pictures that I've managed to find here. Now, Herod's temple was significantly bigger, as you can see. It was on a much grander scale and he'd intended to build it really, really glorious. It's more than double the size of Solomon's temple. But again, the key design parts and components remained consistent with the original tabernacle instructions. The building that you can see sitting there on the top of Herod's temple contained the two main sections again, the two main chambers, the holy place and the holy of holies. And again, they were separated by a veil, but on a much, much larger scale. Now, amongst all of these buildings, the tent, the tabernacle, Solomon's temple and Herod's temple, there was a consistent theme. Separation and partition was a key element in all of these structures and the veil was present in each and every version. There were significant rituals in place that the priest had to go through to enable them to minister before the Lord. And there are examples in the Bible where priests went went in without having done those rituals and they died right there and then for having done it wrong. There was a huge emphasis on holiness and purity required to be able to be in that room and in that place with God. Your heart really had to be in the right place. But then something incredible happens. At the point when Jesus dies on the cross in Matthew 27 verse 50 to 51 it tells us and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Now, we're not talking ripping a piece of cotton here. I've made curtains. I've put cotton lining on the back and the quickest way to do it is to rip it in two. This was layers and layers of silks and fabrics and fine weaves and all sorts of things. Now, it's really hard to get an indication of just how big this curtain was. This veil was huge. The temple curtain was massive. And this picture gives you an illustration, a visual illustration of just how big it might have looked. Now, there's no definitive answer out there as to how thick this was. The veil, some sources say it was around 40 foot tall and 20 foot wide and as thick as the palm of a man's hand, which is about eight or nine inches wide. Others referring it to needing a couple of hundred people to move it round and maneuver it. So this was no small incident. This veil ripping in two from top to bottom at the point when Jesus yields up his spirit is a huge thing to happen. Now, given what I've said before about 
the reason it was there was to completely separate people, to divide the holy and holies in the holy place, the place where it was safe for the priests to be and the place where it was not safe for them to be. I can't even imagine that the panic on their faces when that happened. The priests who are in the temple, they've worked their whole lives to maintain this barrier between the presence of God and the people to keep them separate. And in one moment, this thing has been torn in two and suddenly they are exposed to the presence of God. And they've not really understood what's going on because they've never really understood what was happening with Jesus and who he was and why he was there. They must have been so alarmed at this event and what it must have meant for them. It's really sad that they didn't get the imagery of what was happening. But at the end of the day, the holiness of God remains unchanged. Even after the veil was torn, he's still a holy God. He's still the same God that was, you know, they couldn't be in his presence one day and now they could. So what had changed? Why can we now access the presence when we couldn't before? And the answer is Jesus. Through the tearing of Jesus' flesh and the outpouring of his blood on the cross, he made one single sacrifice once and for all. Whereas the priests had to come and continuously do that for the Israel people. Jesus' death on the cross had now done that once for all. And the ripping of his flesh is reflected in the ripping of the veil. So what does that mean for us? The veil is gone and there's now nothing between us. If we go back to the verse where we started in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the verse that inspired me to start looking down this whole process in the first place, that verse, as we said before, had a then and a now, a before and an after. Before, there had to be a veil. The veil like the one that Moses had over his face to conceal the presence of God from the people. This barrier was extended to the tabernacle to keep them separate from the holiness of God. And they had to have a mediator. In those days, it was Moses and the priests who would go in on their behalf to make the sacrifices and be their go-between between them and God. But now the veil is removed in Jesus and we have unveiled faces. Jesus is the mediator once and for all. We don't have to do the continual sacrifices. His sacrifice was sufficient to permanently make the way clear to allow people to be in the presence of God. So now there's no barrier, nothing holding us back. There is nothing between us and God. It was the imagery of this event that truly made me realise there is absolutely nothing separating me from God and being able to have a relationship with him. No sin, no condemnation, no shame, no guilt, no fear. Nothing can separate us from the presence and the love of God. The way has been made absolutely clear. The fact that he would go to such extraordinary lengths to pour his self out on the cross there, to remove that physical barrier that we would have had, the separation between us, completely blows my mind. But seeing the, barrier, the, the veil removed and that barrier being split into and just something visual about seeing that ripping just really, really opens the way to know that this changes the way that I approach God. I can have that relationship with him. There's just something about that image of I'm, I'm removing this thing from between us 
all of the sin and all of the condemnation and everything to make a way clear. All of the past guilt, all of the past shame, nothing can separate us from God. If that's not something you know and experience yet, then I really encourage you to meditate on this, the symbolism of what this means for the veil to be completely ripped in two. And I really pray that you find freedom to have that depth of relationship with God, to know that you can enter his courts with thanksgiving and praise and walk in and have that relationship with him and be free the way he always intended it for us to be. I want to wrap up today with a visual illustration, another one. Um, when I started preparing this message over a year ago, I wasn't able to finish it. And I really, really felt like a piece of the jigsaw puzzle was missing. But now that we're on the other side of this crazy, crazy year that we've had, I realized I couldn't possibly have finished this, this preach a year ago because I didn't have this part of the jigsaw. Never before have we had such a clear visual demonstration of what it means to be interacting with people through a barrier. What it looks like, what it feels like to have barriers stopping us interacting with each other. What am I talking about? Face masks. Literally wearing a veil on our faces to protect those around us in the same way that Moses protected the people from the glory of God that was shining on his face. Plastic screens physically separating us and creating a barrier like the veil did in the tabernacle to separate them from the presence of God. These things have stopped us interacting freely with those we love to protect them. And whilst these things might linger around for a little while yet, once they're removed, we're going to know such a freedom to have a close and intimate relationship with people who we've been separated from for so long. As we start to step into that freedom in the natural world in the coming weeks and months, I really, really hope and pray that not only can we do that physically, but spiritually as well. In the same way that these face masks will go completely Right now, today, there is nothing between you and Jesus. The face mask, the veil, it's been removed. It's gone. There's nothing stopping you coming back to him and having that close relationship with him. We don't have to live with that barrier now. Right now, it's gone. We might have to have them right now to separate us from friends and family. But there's nothing between us and God. Nothing separating us from him. As we come back into the real world in the coming weeks, some things will have changed, some things will stay the same, and some things will be different. The way we do life is going to be a bit different for a while, but God hasn't changed. He's the same God waiting with open arms, longing for us to have a relationship with him. He desires each and every one of us to be able to be in his presence and meet with him face to face without the veils and the coverings. To be able to come and express ourselves freely when we come to worship, be that with structure, in person, remotely, wherever we are, wherever we're interacting with him, we can be free to be in that place with him. Our framework might have changed over the last year, but his love for us has not changed. 
his desire to be with us has not changed. In a year where everything we know it has completely been taken away, one thing that hasn't changed is God's love for us and all that matters is him. So I really want to pray for us now. God, I really just ask that you just come and be with us. I just encourage you to open up your hands right now. God, come and dwell among us. God, we're so grateful that you have made a way for us to be completely free, to be completely walking with you, to have nothing between us, nothing separating us, no sin, no condemnation, no guilt, no fear, no shame separating us between you and your love for us, God. Thank you that you have made the way for us to be clear. And God, as we learn to navigate what the new normal will be for us as we come out of this period of lockdown, God, I just pray that we will know what it is to run into your arms. We will know what it is to be in your place of relationship with you, where we can interact with you completely freely. Thank you, God, that you have made that way so clear for us. God, let us open up our hearts to you again this morning to come into your presence. We invite you in, God. God, remove the veils from our faces and our hearts that have stopped us being with you and have prevented us from interacting with you. Help us to see that there is nothing between us. Help us to step into that place of freedom with you. God, I release hearts this morning, hearts that have felt like they have been locked away and been unable to express themselves in relationship with you. We speak freedom and life this morning to those people. In Jesus' name, amen. I really hope you found this morning helpful um, and that we can all really learn to step into what it is to walk in a free place with God. And as I say, as things open up, I can't wait to come back and worship with you together in person, in one room, all running after God together. But let's not wait until then. We can start now and we can come back ready, raring to go with our hearts fully, fully open to everything that God has for us. So it's been really lovely to share with you this morning. And like I said, I can't wait to see you all again. But until then, I hope you all have a wonderful week going deeper with God and walking in your relationship with him. And we'll see you all very, very soon. Take care and have a fabulous week. Bye.